Um, well, it's a shame because uh, how interesting this material is, quite honestly, um, and particularly because it fills in this big period between when the Hebrew Bible is finished and when the New Testament begins, and we sort of got to do that with the Maccabees. Um, but maybe, as always, if we could start, uh, the video is maybe helpful, but how about your reactions to Daniel and the Maccabees and Esdras? I mean, um, thoughts or themes or questions or things that bothered you? Timely. Say say more about that. Because what the condition our culture, the political systems and the financial systems are in today. You know, like the new headline on the news and on the paper this morning was the all companies are citing with Saudi Arabia about the killing of that writer. Oh. You see, so we have a loss of morality for the sake of money. In other words, which God are we serving in this country? It seems that everybody's, I mean, the pursuit is money. That seems to be the number one God that we have. Well, then, um, that's an idol. You know, we don't, when we hear idols, we think about way back then. And statues and things, yeah. yeah. And But the thing is, is we, all idols are not necessarily physical things so far as they're a statue. Yeah. But it's what we give our t all of our time and attention to. Well, if that's the pursuit of money to the neglect of God, that's an idol. Hmm. If fame is the, if the pursuit of fame to the neglect of God and kindness to God's people, that's an idol. That's an idol, yeah. You know, we're a sex-soaked Western world. That is another one. Hmm. You know? I mean, so you... And, and look at our government. We, we don't know what the truth is anymore. I mean, we know what the truth is, but we don't hear it from that level. You know, I mean, there's so much intrigue. So we're in a mess. So if I, yeah, if I hear you right, you're saying Daniel represents this sort of narrative about how, how we might or the need to um, defy worshiping structures of oppression and power, particularly structure, structures that are idolatrous like money or power or corruption for their own sake. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so where, I mean, you were talking earlier about, you know, people are leaving churches. Uh, they're not hearing the word of God like they need to hear it. Mm. And all that, that there's that problem plus the fact that the attraction of material goods are so strong mm. that it's easy to bail. Okay, thanks. You, you know, one of the, my thought after listening to you really was, it's amazing that we have to relearn the same lessons mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking about uh, just. Uh, I'm not, but just briefly, I was oh, thinking done. about re oh, okay. I was thinking about reincarnation this morning, and I thought, I wonder if there's really something to that. Maybe <laughs> since you, through history we keep redoing the same thing over and over again. Maybe we are the original Jews or Israelites, whatever. <laughs> so we still don't get it. <laughs> That's an interesting. <laughs> well, just for fun, you know, in in the the dominant. Um, 
Judeo-Christian tradition, the problem with human beings has been that we're sinful or that we're prideful. That's what's come out of Augustine. Um, but you know, in the, in the Muslim tradition, the inherent problem with human beings is that we forget. It's not that we're bad, but that we forget, which is why you've got to do these pillars every day to help you remember, <laughs> and you live into this remembrance over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, I think we have to be careful with Augustine's. Oh, I don't endorse it. I'm just saying that's been the dominant tradition. No, yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting in here. How, how, many, how many times a day do Muslims? They pray five times. Five times. Well, in here, of course, Daniel faced Jerusalem and prayed three times. A day. Yes. So um, that was interesting. You know, it's, it, what, what is further interesting is if you're a Shiite Muslim, you, you, in fact, do pray three times a day at set times, and the other two are up to you. <laughs> but there's three prescribed. If you're Sunni Muslim, all five times are prescribed. Yeah. Facing Jerusalem. You notice that's interesting, because this is the first time we hear that happening, that people are praying facing Jerusalem. For what it's worth, the early uh, Muslims prayed facing Jerusalem until 6.30, and then they started, they changed their direction to Mecca. There's, anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Other thoughts about Daniel or the Maccabees or, or Esdras? I missed out on reading Esdras. I didn't see where that It's was. super weird. I'll just... <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe it's okay if you didn't mind me. I mean, I'm not trying to stifle anything. I'm just going to let in this dog. Um, not to stifle any questions or comments, but this literature belongs to a type that we no longer really enjoy or understand as a separate genre. Um, and that is, this is what we'd call apocryphal or an apocrypha. Now, we know when you're reading an op-ed piece that that's different from a news story, different from a poem, and different from a recipe. We understand how to spot all of that. What's funny about it when we read the Bible is one of the things we are often very unaware of is the different genres in the Bible. So just consider in Leviticus, there's legal code. Now, you kind of know that because you say, this is boring, this is all about rules. Well, it's supposed to be. That's the genre, right? I mean, you want to read something boring? Try reading the city ordinances. You know, they're written in such a way that he's, well, I'm sorry, it's not prosaic. There's no central story, right? If you want to read exciting parts of the law, you read the case and the opinions about those, right? Because the case has a story. But if you were just to read the opinions on the law or the law itself without the cases, it makes for dry reading. Um, we often, when we read prophets in church or at home, we don't actually have them pointed poetically. We just put them all together in a paragraph, when in fact all of that is poetry. So, Different genre, but we're not always aware of it. And, and part of that is because, you know, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm there is. And one of the things we, we don't know is that um, every verse in the first, I'm trying to remember, 12 or something like this, starts with the equivalent of the letter A. And then it's the next 
12 verses all start with the letter B. So they go through. That was like a poem kind of thing you learned to do probably when you were in the third grade. Well, when you translate it into English, they don't all start with the letter A. <laughs> so you kind of lose sense of what the psalmist is trying to do. Well, this is a genre that we really struggle with. And uh, to be honest with you, it only applies in the case of Daniel, particularly chapters 7 through 12, which, by the way, aren't written in Hebrew anyway. The oldest uh, versions we have of this are in Aramaic, whereas uh, 1 through 6, the oldest versions are in Hebrew. So they are different languages in our tradition. This is the only part of the Hebrew Bible that we have Aramaic as, the, as the, probably the source. And that would and, imply that it was written by different it could, it's hard to know. You, 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 certainly, you, there was a disconnect in your reading between these two bits, right? This is narrative, and this is not. <laughs> so there's an interior shift. Um, the other books of our Bible that are uh, sort of apocryphal would be um, the Revelation of John, which we'll end up reading at the end, and um, parts of the prophet Zephaniah. Some people say the first few chapters of Ezekiel are because they sort of involve these rather strange visions. Um, so um, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this, I think, and I certainly grew up in a church that said these books were predicting the end of the world. So you could um, sort of have the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other and, and books of, like Daniel and Revelation were telling you signs of the times. The, the only problem with that, of course, is that if, if these only spoke to us 2,000 years later, why would anybody keep them? <laughs> There's only so many books in the Bible, you know, so if one didn't speak to you at all and with some future generation, would you really pick that? Um, in, in, instead of complicated maps and, and prophecies, and this is, I think, a big deal that he's talked about in the video a little bit, a lot of times we think about prophets as doing something like foretelling the future. And in general, you think about like Nostradamus as this prophet of doom. But in, in, in Scripture, really, and think about the prophets we've read about already, they don't foretell, they, they sort of foretell. That is, like they are able to speak a message of God for the current generation. So, like, think back when we read the Chronicles. Ahab wants to know, should we go to war? Well, they consult the prophet. <laughs> now, in some ways, I guess the prophet is able to speak the outcome of that battle, but more importantly, what the prophet does is says, um, you're wicked. <laughs> and that's why you'll fail. It's not just that you will, it's why you will. Repent or this is going to happen to you. So, so you know, if this is what prophecy is all about, then, then this is like tarot cards and astrology. But if this is what prophet's about, then really you want to think about Martin Luther King and Gandhi and people who are saying like, hey, we're missing the identity we're called to live into. And perhaps then we could read Daniel, you see, very different ways. We could read Daniel like this, and then we're constantly wondering, who's the little horn of the beast? Who is that? Or we could read it this way, and uh, it's pretty clear who that is. It's Antiochus Epiphanes IV. <laughs> and 
the message is not just, oh, um, this is some future thing. It is, these powers are monstrous. Resist them. <laughs> and sort of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say is, our God is able to deliver us, but even if God doesn't, we won't worship you. <laughs> that, I would tell you, I would say that phrase is the key phrase for the whole book of Daniel. God is able to deliver us, but even if God doesn't, we are not going to sell ourselves to idolatry. So you kind of heard me say a way that, that I think is a more compelling way when we read about monsters is that those are caricatures. They're describing the inward reality of these terrible, oppressive countries. They're not even human. And they're not even just a bear. They're like a bear plus an eagle plus... plus. They've got all of these monstrous characteristics rolled in together because they're superhuman in their lack of humanity. They're like uber-predators. In that sense, you know, we, we do get caricatures and we understand political cartoons, right? If you see a donkey and an elephant, you know that those aren't real. Those are, especially when they're drawn, you know those are Democrats and Republicans. You know that. Doonesbury used to be really great about this. For every president, Doonesbury would create sort of an icon. So like what I remember distinctly is that Bill Clinton was always depicted as a waffle. Now... The author of Doonesbury was not saying he had anything to do with breakfast food. So if we read that literally, we would misunderstand that he was trying to describe his perceived inner nature of Bill Clinton, right? And I'd say the same applies here. The inner nature of the kingdoms of Persia and Greece, and particularly Antiochus, is monstrous. I mean... What beast has ten horns? None do. They have two. So this is the, the bestiality of this beast is beyond normalcy. I hope that makes sense, what I'm, what I'm saying. And, and in that sense, right, it, well, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> it's kind of like a political cartoon. Yeah, and this is something that, that we in the West often forget when we look at, like, different statuaries. You know, when, when you see pictures of Kali, the goddess of death, in the Hindu culture, I mean, she's got, like, 12 arms and they've all got weapons. They didn't really think she had a body with 12 arms. That was just sort of depicting her super strength and her ability to reach in all places, and they're all armed. Right? All of her arms are carrying weapons. So that tells you, really... She excels at death. Not, she's a 12-armed woman. I mean, we often forget that the statue is just meant to represent the inner peace. So, at the end of the day, apocrypha actually means to unveil. Usually we approach the Bible and think apocrypha means to veil. <laughs> like it's trying to hide something. The point of these books is to unveil. And in that sense, I, I want to come back to what I think the Bible often does very well for us, if we'll let it. It talks about truth more than it talks about facts. 
It's not factual that there were ten horns with a bragging other horn. That's not at the literal level. <coughs> but that speaks to a truth of the nature beneath things. And, and we don't like this word now, but really that's what myths do. Myths are supposed to talk about the inner character of things more than their factual representation. Which one's more important? Well, I mean, I think it depends on what you want to do. <laughs> They're obviously both important, but if we were only to describe the facts, we would miss the inward machinations, the animal nature, the, the oppressive, inhumane domination character that the facts don't often tell us. So I think that's part of what Daniel's trying to offer us here, if that makes sense. And what's interesting, right, is when you read Daniel, you can get very hung up on like these images, but if you keep reading, the book tells you what it all means. <laughs> it's like people forgot to keep reading the book. I mean, that's the interesting thing. So I agree with um, David Jeremiah. I actually taught at his school. Dr. David Jeremiah, he's on the radio. He's written all kinds of books about end times biblical prophecy. And of course, he writes about Daniel and Revelation. But the funny thing is, again, Daniel interprets itself. It tells you who the nations are. And notice, um, it, it doesn't mention Rome at all. It, it, it mentions Greece, and then when Greece gets broken up, that's the clay mixed with iron. That's very clear. When I read David Jeremiah's book, the iron is the Roman Empire because they, had, they were like the, the, the legions of iron and then now we're living in the other days of the weakened Roman Empire. I mean, that's, that's lovely, but it's not what the book intended at all. I mean, so it, I mean, I suppose it could be true if you wanted it to, but it's way beyond the author's intent. The author is describing events that we read about directly in the Maccabees. And this is, the, this is really uh, the central year. Um, and you can go this way um, four years, and you can go this way four years, and that's really the span of the events in Daniel. So the, just to walk through the historical pattern next, if I can do that, right? We, we talked about last week how um, Jerusalem gets burned totally to the ground in 586 and the people are taken to Babylon as um, captives, the literate people, the, the illiterate people get left behind. In 540, the first return of exiles comes because Cyrus the Great um, sort of lets them go. He ends up dying and Darius is the one who fills it. By the way, you can see pictures down here in the hallway and I hope you won't miss. I, I kind of love to share this story because it's really critical. Babylon um, is a gated community, <laughs> sort of one of the first gated communities, and the Tigris River flowed through the city, and there were sort of like these portcullises uh, barring uh, entry through the river, and most ancient people actually weren't great swimmers anyway. The interesting thing about Babylon is it was thought to be impregnable because the outer wall was more than 20 feet wide. Uh, the story says that a chariot could pull a U-turn on top of the city wall. So, yeah, so really what they did is they built um, two walls and filled them in with trash and built a street on top. Is that makes sense. Now they didn't have explosives and digging underneath that in a river valley is really difficult to do. So 
no one thought you could could take it. They have a permanent supply of fresh water that's really difficult to poison. It's hard to poison a river because it renews itself. There's actually enough arable land in the city wall that they could grow crops during a siege. That's all happening in Daniel when you hear the night that there's writing on the wall, the people are having a celebration even though they're surrounded by Cyrus because they don't think they can ever get them. Now, they've lost all the other surrounding territories, but they believe they're safe in their citadel. What, interestingly enough, what happens is uh, Cyrus does this genius of engineering. Oh, by the way, remember, in the hallway, you can look at pictures of some of the inner walls, the Ishtar Gate, that would be around the palace, but that's not the outer wall. The Ishtar Gate is in Berlin. It's not in, in um, Babylon anymore. Anyway, what happens is Cyrus goes uh, way back here in the, in the uh, Tigris River and he has his engineers they can't get out of the city because they're under siege. He has them dig a channel like this around the city. It takes a few months and then in the middle of the night he dams this and the water goes that way and they walk right in under the city and take it without a single loss. That's the writing of the wall story. And, and that description is on the Cyrus Cylinder, which you can see in the Antiquities Museum in London, I believe. Um, so, so that's a real historical event that Babylon fell in one night, <laughs> literally, this way. And, uh, and, and again, that happens in Daniel chapter 5. 540 is when the exiles end up leaving and, uh, and they rebuild the temple. We talked about that last week. It was much shorter. In 330 is when, um, you know, the... the um, gosh, I always struggle to remember the name of those wars. You know, the Persians start fighting the Greeks pretty soon after this. Like in the, in the late four, or the mid-400s, they start going back and forth. That's not the... Why am I not remembering the name of that? Whatever. The, the, the Persian, you know, there's all these sort of legends like 300 at Thermopylae hold back the Persian army and they end up taking and burning Athens but they don't end up winning uh, these wars. And the Greeks push back but ultimately it's not the Greeks that take over, it's the Macedonians because Alexander the Great takes all of Greece, takes all of Persia, and makes it over into India before he ends up getting sick and dying. Well, by 330, Alexander the Great has taken all of this property in the Levant, in, in Syria, Palestine. And Alexander was, uh, if, if nothing else, a highly effective and dedicated evangelist. He decided that Greek language and culture really were superior to all others. So he decided that everyone then would learn Greek, and Greek became the lingua franca by force. Um, this is when Aramaic and Hebrew start to erode, uh, so that we end up, by the year we get to, um, boy, what is it? Somewhere around 80, and we're still talking BCE, the, the Hebrew Bible has to be done in Greek. And it's done in Alexandria, which is the intellectual... What's that, sorry? The Septuagint. That's the Septuagint, yeah. I'll tell you about that in one second, why it's called that. Um, so Alexander uh, takes over, and then immediately after Alexander, what we read, he dies in 323. 
and he splits uh, into four according to his generals, right? And the two that really matter to us are Ptolemy in Egypt and Seleucus in Palestine. These are called the Ptolemies and the Seleucids that follow them. Syria. Syria. Yeah, but what happens is the, the generals aren't happy to stay in their own little places, yeah. so they start jockeying for who can have more. And ultimately, the Ptolemies don't do well. Seleucius comes down and ends up sort of taking that um, before too long. Um, still very Greek. Very Greek. And again, imposing Greek language and customs. So think through some of those customs. You can read about this in James Michener's book, The Source, if you want to. Um, gymnasiums in which people exercise naked. That's abhorrent to Jewish minds. Um, in the Greek ideal, the male physical body unaltered, so uncircumcised, is the pinnacle of beauty. So they despise Jewish people as, well, sort of hating the body and hating humanity. That's their read of Jewish people. Um, there's the practice because uh, young men are the paragons of beauty that older men mentor them and possibly have sex with them. That's not understood in the Greek culture to be homosexuality. It is by Jewish people. Uh, there's some of that happening in Rome and supposedly the Romans end that. They call that the Greek vice. Um, but you need to know when you're reading the New Testament um, and you hear mentions about homosexuality, it's really hard to know if they're talking about that. I mean, effectively, that's, that's rape. Even if the young person's consenting, they don't have equal power. I mean, you, when, you're the, when you're being patronized by somebody and they tell you this is what's going to happen, it's much harder to say no. Does that sort of make sense? These are not consensual relationships, even though society agreed they could happen. That word, by the way, it's called pederasty. That kind of relationship. That's very Greek. Um, few other cultural things, right? Greeks actually are very happy to eat swine. And beyond that, Greeks sacrifice things like swine to deities like Zeus. So there's some of the critical conflicts between Judaism and Greece. Well... Depending on who's ruling during this swath of time really depends on how aggressive they are with their cultural um, takeover. But the big problem comes around 170 where the fourth king, he's a Seleucid, called Antiochus, he's the fourth one, he names himself Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. So he sort of says he is the incarnation of one of the gods. Now that's, that's not strange in the Greek mind uh, to, to say you're some kind of demigod. The first person to really do that, though, was actually Alexander himself. So you can tell if you ever look at a picture of Alexander, it's not really how he looked. <laughs> We don't have any reliable portrait of Alexander. They're all stylized. He's always wearing a lion's skin 
like Hercules, and his face is cast in the same way. Same thing if you go to Egypt and you look at all of those pharaoh pictures. There's no way they all looked like that. It's, it's stylized. It's showing the oppression of power and uniformity. And Alexander acted in such a way as to sort of say he was the reincarnation of Hercules. Um, that was really new. See, pharaohs didn't become gods till they died. But here's Alexander saying he's a god while he's alive. And Antiochus is doing that too. So in the history of the world, that's relatively new, even though Alexander did it 150 years before he did. Antiochus has decided to, to push Alexander's program of social conversion even further. He makes several of the, the rules, and we read about these in the Maccabees, circumcisions outlawed if a woman circumcises her baby she and the baby are both killed owning any of the torah see that's in hebrew not greek owning the torah is prohibited you burn the torah or you are burned with it they build gymnasiums in jerusalem as well remember that's a place where you would exercise naked which they believe to be completely awful and um, you notice even uh, in Maccabees, some men are reversing their circumcision surgically. You can read about that in the source by James Michener. Terrible operation. There's no anesthetic. No anesthetic. There's no stainless steel. I mean, this is extreme danger. Um, and then lastly, Antiochus is the one who goes into Jerusalem and at the side of the Holy of Holies offers a pig to Zeus as an offering. This is what the book of Daniel calls the abomination that causes desolation. Worshipping a false god in the sanctuary of the Hebrew god with an unkosher offering. It's really about as bad as it gets. There's really no way to kind of give you a modern equivalent. I mean, again, I, I suppose if you took a pig into Mecca, <laughs> which you would, cannot do, I just, you can't, can't do this, but if you were to do that and, and offer it to, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's the best thing we can think of. Um, how do you desecrate a church? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess there are ways you can do that, really, but, but this is like the penultimate <laughs> desecration of a place. And that's when things get real crazy and people, according to the book, this is when people start to resist physically. And they resist with guerrilla warfare because, frankly, they can't stand up to the military technology of Antiochus. Which, by the way, if you know anything about um, ancient military technology, this is the phalanx. Um, these, are iron, uh, these are iron spears that are like 20 feet long and uh, people stand in lock formation and there's three rows deep and they push. So you lock your arm and the person has their shield in your back and you literally just march over people and the people in front have spears like, oh no, the shield is very big and they have a spear coming over the shield like this, just stabbing and cutting everything to bits. Um, the Romans figured out you could do a much better job with a smaller shield and a, and a sword about a cubit long that was sharpened on both sides. So uh, that's how they were able to really beat the Greeks is they figured out a much more portable way of being a phalanx than being a phalanx. 
if, if the back lines fail, the front lines fail. If somebody trips, the phalanx doesn't work anymore. I mean, the whole key is that even if the person in front has been stabbed, the people in the back are shoving them over you. I mean, so is this, is this just sort of, it's like a tank that could just run over anything that seemed very, very impenetrable behind these huge shields. The people in the second row, if arrows or projectiles come, can put the shields over the heads so that you, there's really no way to get in there, if that makes sense. That's, that's this military innovation that Alexander inherited that still is the way people are fighting. They're able to beat this because they use guerrilla tactics. They don't fight people in open fights. <laughs> you know, this is how we won the American Revolution. We didn't line up because <laughs> we'd have lost. Right? That was, that was it. So it was really effective. The thing that really helped, though, was that Antiochus came down to fight um, the Jewish rebels and had to go home because there was internal conflict. Like, there was a coup being staged, and he had to leave, and he ended up being killed. The other thing that helped him, interestingly enough, is that the rebels, um, who end up being called the Hasmoneans, the rebels make, a, make a, an alliance with these people called the Kittim. Uh, they make a, a, an alliance with the Romans, who, interestingly enough, end the alliance 100 years later by conquering them. <laughs> Uh, somewhere around 70 BCE. And then we're thinking about this war of Jewish independence against Antiochus really getting traction in the period 167 to 164. Um, so abomination of desolation probably around 167. And then is this Jewish sort of rebellion that ends up being successful around 164. about 100 years, the Jews. Had some independence. The independence is really strange, though, because um, what the Hasmoneans do is they create a, a person who is both the high priest and the king at the same time. So what they didn't like was the Greek ruler being in charge of religion and politics and that's not how it's supposed to work in the Hebrew system. The high priest is, is genealogical. It's related to Aaron. The king is related to David. That's how it's supposed to go. But when they get power, what they do is they take all of it. How often that happens, right? That revolutions turn into institutions as soon as there's power to be had. And so some scholars have said, actually, this has very little, all this rebellion has very little to do with um, religious claims. It has to do with country people and city people and the country people are tired of the city people telling them what to do, so they come and take over the city, and then they tell everybody what to do. <laughs> um, there's probably some of both, because the truth is, um, religious power is still really about power. When was the uh, Second Temple built? Second Temple is built shortly after 540 BCE, and, um, and, then, and then here we are, here we are as well. Just because we're not going to get to talk about it otherwise, during this period, there's actually even some expansion. A after the Hasmoneans take power, they expand their territory a little bit because, see, Antiochus has withdrawn and there's a little bit of a vacuum. And they end up taking over this region that's to the north and to the east called Idumea. 
And, and what's interesting about that is they forcibly convert those people to Judaism. And you even read about that in the Maccabees. If somebody won't get circumcised, you kill them. So sometimes we think, oh, those terrible Muslims, they converted people at the sword. Where do you think they got the idea? One of the people they converted is Herod's father. So King Herod was actually an Idumean. He was not a Hebrew. And he was forcibly converted to Judaism. So Herod's Judaism is always kind of suspicious because he was a forced convert, not a real Jew. Herod ended up keeping some of the Jewish law. We learn about him later, but only really what he wanted to. <laughs> yeah. That was probably more than you wanted to know there. Um, but this is a really difficult period, and it's sort of, you know, what, what ends up happening is they get, they get um, Jerusalem. They wanted to have the festival of Sukkot in Jerusalem. Sukkot is the one where you, you celebrate God guiding you in the wilderness by living underneath sort of a pergola for a week. Um, they wanted to get that. It's a high holy festival, and they didn't get it in time. So they, got it, they took Jerusalem two months later than the festival had to be. So what they did is they celebrated Sukkot, which is eight days long, uh, later, and they did it for eight days, and that's where Hanukkah came from. And some people will tell you, well, it's because they needed enough oil, and there was only enough oil for one day, and it lasted eight days. I mean, maybe, but really it's Sukkot two months later. And Sukkot is? is that Feast of Booths, their tabernacles, again, where you sleep underneath a pergola. But what is the basis? It's base, the basis of it was that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years wow. and God guided them. So contemporary Jewish people still do this today to remember that they wandered in the wilderness or that they are wandering and God is guiding them to the promised land. I mean, so it's a way that you reconnect your story. We talked about remembering being a, a, a problem. Uh, festivals are supposed to remember us to our past and our future. So that's sort of the, the, the deal. Yeah, Hanukkah was not a big deal until 100 years ago, and that's because Christmas became so ubiquitous that it, that it became this thing. Uh, interestingly enough, the Jewish um, temple has a menorah that's got seven. At Hanukkah, it has one of these, which is a Hanukkah. Now, if you're counting, you'll say, Mike, that's got nine. It does, and that's because this one, the Shemesh, is used to light the other eight, but it doesn't count. You, you light this one and you use it to light the other ones. But that's a Hanukkah, and that's a menorah. And they're not at all alike, if that makes sense. Well, that's eight, that would represent the eight days, of course. That's it. Oh, actually, I drew this one wrong. It should be like that, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven... Yeah, that's it. <clears throat> so you just count them. <laughs> and, and you only use this at Hanukkah, otherwise you never use it. Hanukkah menorah. Okay. And how many in the menorah? The menorah has seven. seven. So really the Hanukkah is the menorah plus one, except it's actually plus two. Now I've seen some Hanukkahs that only have eight, and the Shemesh, the lighter, is not on it. So you can see that as well. But seven is menorah, and more than seven is Hanukkah. But that gets so confused, people call the menorah. Of course they do. Because we just don't even, you know, again, that's not in our customer tradition really at all. 
Um, well, that's, that's seven, so that's a significant number, seven. Of course it is. Um, and that is, was there a Hanukkah, or was there, was there a menorah in the temple? Yeah, that's, that is the lampstand. So when you read about lampstands in the temple, they're menorahs. And you can see that depicted, actually, if you go to Rome, in Trajan's victoring column. Um, they show the temple being looted by Rome in the year 70 um, AD or CE, and they're carrying away the menorah. Often around Hanukkah, people will put up uh, electronic ones, but usually they're Hanukkiahs, so they're not menorahs. <laughs> is, the, is that menorah to represent um, the uh, uh, Genesis, the seven Yeah, or? I mean, maybe. There's not really a clear description of what it's there. It's, it's very old. <laughs> And traditional. I mean, nobody really knows where, why this is called the Star of David either. But it is. <laughs> so, sort of like that. Now, you can make up, you can say, oh, seven like Genesis, seven like perfection, seven like Shabbat. Those are probably not necessarily wrong. Or, are they absolutely right? We don't know. <clears throat> I don't know if that makes sense. Um, so that's the big, big swath of history there. I hope that's okay. And then when we come back to Daniel then, we're sort of, we get to come back to the timeline a little bit. Because notice the book of Daniel has got Daniel himself straddling this period and going beyond. Because he's, first he's with Nebuchadnezzar, and then he's with the Persians. And then he's talking about this stuff. This is really big swath being represented in Daniel. And, and a couple things that are really, I don't know if they're helpful, they've probably bothered some. The first king, is called Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I know you're saying, I read in the Bible his name's Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible's wrong. There's nobody named Nebuchadnezzar, never has been. Um, his name, the Neo-Babylonian guy's name, is Nebuchadrezzar. Now, it could be, that's what Hebrew people call them, because, hey, like some Asiatic languages, there's, it's tough between um, R's and L's. Do you know about this? So this is a joke on NPR. What do you call a lady with one leg shorter than the other? Eileen. Eileen. What if she's Korean? Irene. Uh, so, so this is this thing that happens because actually they don't have those two sounds. So when they struggle to differentiate them. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I know that's a terrible thing, but that's, but that's also that's true of many, of many Asian countries because they don't have distinct RL sounds when they come to English. That's kind of a confusing when you use which one. Um, so it could be the R and N are different in the languages, maybe. All, all I want to do to say here is that if the Bible has to be true at every point to be valuable, then, then we just lost it. <laughs> uh, Nebuchadrezzar is an interesting guy. Um, in the book, he comes across as really dumb. I mean, right? I mean, just I want to point out, he, he, he's shrewd. He makes the magician the first time 
tell him the dream and the interpretation. The next time he doesn't require that. Did you notice? And that's weird. Like, I would think I would say, tell me the dream again, you know? Um, he hears in the dream about this statue, and then he decides to make a statue. And the person who told him the dream, he's essentially going to burn up in the furnace, which is really strange, don't you think? Um, <clears throat> You know there's that bit where he runs out in the field and lives like a wild animal? Well, that, if you read that figuratively, it's a bit true, actually. Um, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a religious fanatic. And he decides to abdicate the throne to worship the moon god Seen. And while he's abdicated, his son Nabonidus is in Babylon running the show. But Nebuchadnezzar is sort of like Charles V. You know, Charles V is the Holy Roman Emperor, and he leaves to become a monk. I don't know if you, if you know that story. Well, Nebuchadnezzar leaves, and Nabonidus rules, and, and it's really weird what he does worshiping the moon god. I mean, the, the, they probably are describing him as a wild animal, you know, I mean, because they thought that was a cult. It was. And, and, then, and then I guess he comes back, right? So historical incident, and probably embellished in this other weird way, if that makes sense. Before he did that, he captured Jerusalem, right? Yeah, he captured Jerusalem back in 596 and burned it to the ground in 586. And then takes all of the... He loots the temple completely, yeah. All of the, well, that and, and all of the... Smart people. Smart people. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and so here's the three smart people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then there's this fiery furnace. Now, if you're wondering, like, what is, who is the fourth person in the fire? I mean, Christians love to say it's Jesus, but remember, these people didn't believe in Jesus. So it's, it's probably the archangel Gabriel or Jabriel, or it's the archangel Michael. I'm more on those people in a second. Or it's just God. I mean, you know, in the Bible, there's really... <clears throat> God shows up physically a couple of times. Like God shows up to Abraham and God shows up to Joshua and, and God's like there in a body and the people don't die when they see that person. But, but there, there you go. Weird that Daniel isn't thrown in the fiery furnace. Did you notice? So Daniel apparently also does not eat the defiled food. But they don't, and it makes you wonder, did Daniel bow down when he heard the music? And Shadrach and the beast didn't? Like, what happened to Daniel? We don't, we don't really know. The book doesn't care. Um, that food is defiled, you know, because it's been altered, offered to pagan gods. So all wine and all meat are offerings to the gods, and that's why it's defiled. It's not because it's got pork in it, necessarily. It's because it's been offered. Help me, because, you know, I, I read it, and I've got to tell you, you know, I, you know, I, I read it, and... and not getting a lot of the interpretation. I see it now. But anyway, I thought that Daniel had been the one who told Nebuchadnezzar not only the um, what told him the dream, but he also interpreted it. He is right. He, That's right. Nobody else could or wouldn't because they couldn't tell him the dream. And, and Nebuchadnezzar said, if you can't tell him the dream and interpret, you're dead. Yeah, because he said... You can make up any interpretation you want if I tell you the dream. I'll know your interpretation's real if you tell me the dream and the interpretation. I mean, it's pretty shrewd, you yeah. know. Tough test for magicians, but in some ways it kind of makes sense, right? Because, well, 
I mean, you're, 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 if you dream about um, canes or guns or stick shift cars in the Freudian sense, those could be phallic symbols, or, or, or they could just be canes and guns and cars. I mean, you know, so anyway. Yeah. So he did that. So when I was reading it, I thought that Daniel wasn't thrown in the fire because he was able to do this. Well, no, the reason Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire is because they didn't bow down to the golden image. But neither did Daniel, right? Well, Daniel's absent from that whole incident. So where is he? We don't, we don't really know. Yeah. Um, that handwriting on the wall, sorry. Well, was, didn't Daniel's being thrown into the den proceed? So Daniel was thrown into after... By a different king, by a Persian king. That's, so that's Darius. Yeah, the first thing that happens is... Yeah, they just can go up against the building. It doesn't really matter where. Yeah. Um, the, the first thing that happens is they won't eat the corrupted food. The second thing that happens is they won't bow down to the idol, which, by the way, those are the same thing. Eating the corrupted food is idolatry. It's just building the case. They won't bow down to the idol. Then it's the fiery furnace. The next thing that happens is um, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is driven out like a wild thing. And then the thing that happens after that is the handwriting on the wall. Uh, because they're drinking out of the temple vessels, it's sort of like they're pretending to be gods. And the last thing that happens and is... Daniel is brought in to interpret. To interpret. That's yeah. it. Mene, mene, tekel, parsons. That's, and that's not Hebrew, that's Aramaic. <laughs> Interestingly enough, which no one speaks. And, and then... Uh, There's one person in the well, plenty of people can understand Aramaic now. We study that language, you know, to get a PhD. You better learn some Aramaic if this is what you're doing. New Testament people don't know that, but if you're interested in this period, yeah, you gotta, you gotta know some Aramaic. Uh, yeah, but I mean, as far as a nation of people. Yeah, I mean, you know, in Mel Gibson's movie, um, The Passion of the Christ, which is like one of the worst movies ever made, uh, all the, all of the script is in Aramaic. Um, yeah, um, which is weird because who knows if Jesus spoke that in Greek. I mean, we just don't know that. Um, then it's the lion's den, right? And um, the lion's den is under a Persian king because that's changed over. Darius. But notice he also has the name of Ahasuerus, and that's the Esther king. There's no way that's the same person. There's just no way that's the same person. They, they read so differently. Um, yeah, well, it's funny you mention that because actually in ancient Near Eastern myths, there is somebody called Donale, and Donale is like, um, I don't want to say a demigod, but like a demigod. So this is an interesting thing. In Hebrew, this means um, God, God is judge. Is the L God? L is God, and Dan is to judge. So, Dan E L. If you put it, if you drop the I vowel in there, means my my judge is God. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of scholarship about this book that wonders since it's apocryphal and all, if this is a real person or if this is a cipher for a real person. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, 
is he a historical figure or is he a mythic figure? And see, the, the, if you read it this way as a mythic figure, your judge is God, not Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> so if Nebuchadnezzar tells you to bow down to an idol, he's not your judge, God is. Oh, yeah, you mean about this guy, Don Ale? Yes. Don Ale is like a mythic figure in Mesopotamia, too. Yeah, yeah. But, in, but, you know, the interesting thing is, even though Semitic languages are all related, they are nuanced and they are different. So it, it may not mean my judge is God in Mesopotamia. In fact, I don't think it does. Um, well, actually, it might. It might mean my judge is, is the god El, but in Hebrew, the god El is Elohim, and it's the only god. I mean, just to give you an example of what difference that sort of makes. And then we get into the visions. <laughs> right? Um, there's some different phrases in there, like the ancient one. Um, we get to hear that there's like a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece, and there's the prince Michael, and the Michael, Michael is the prince of the Hebrew people. And, and this is a great book, if you're interested, uh, by Walter Wink. He's, a, he's an Episcopal priest up in New York and a scholar. I think it's called un, un, No, I think it's called Naming the Powers is the first one. It's actually a short book in which Walter Wink really talks about princes and angels and what those mean. And biblically, the, what seems to be happening according to Walter Wink, and I think he's right, is that um, the prince of Persia and Michael, who's like the prince of, the, prince of uh, the Hebrew people, he's not a real prince. He's not like the, 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 the crown prince or something like that. This represents sort of the spirit of the people so if you're thinking about this, it's sort of like every nation has a representative in heaven because there is something like <laughs> uh, metaphysical about nations. And so their, their, their spirit is represented in heaven, and that's their prince. And the princes in heaven like vie for power and authority and things like that, and God ends up um, obviously adjudicating over all of that. So the Hebrew prince's name is Michael. <laughs> Isn't that great? Which, which, by the way, is an interesting thing because Michael in Hebrew is split like this, Mikael. Here you see God. This is who, and this is like. So Michael really means who is like, who is like God among the gods. <laughs> There's no God like God. That's sort of how that goes. Who is like him among the gods? That's, that's me. <laughs> so so, so um, the spirit of the Hebrew people is Michael, and then there's a spirit of the Persian people, and those, grow, those wax and wane um, according to some different things. And who, is, who is the Michael equivalent in the Persian? Yeah, I don't, they're, they're, they're never named. That's the interesting thing. The other people's angels or princes don't have names. When you think about prince and angel, I mean, really, we're talking about this old word principalities. These, these, are, these are principalities. So, so there's no doubt that there is sort of this 
I don't think you even have to, you could be an atheist and believe this, that there is something greater than the parts to the Nazi regime. There's this spirit of Nazism. I don't know what you would call it. I didn't think you would call it just Hitler, but there's this clearly this spirit that actually sometimes can override people's mental capacity. You, you can call that mob mentality if you want to, but that's a real thing. Mob mentality is a real thing, and, and that's, I think, kind of what is, is being talked about here. These are representatives. Just like in the game Risk, you know, you've got one little army icon that represents the army of Mongolia or Kamchatka, and that's the prince of that place. We could argue we've got the same situation today in, in, in the two political parties. Yeah. Spirit and, and current. The Republican Party is spirit and current. And there doesn't seem to be anything in between. And so I think that's... An, if there was... Yeah. It's less and less all the time. I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. Is there, what is the prince of America like now? And is that prince schizophrenic or bipolar because we're so split into these? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? I, in, this, in this understanding, I'm not sure that there really are two princes. I mean, I suppose there could be. Um, there could be. One's always better than the other. And which one it is probably depends which one you are. You know, that's the interesting thing. Yeah, but it is interesting to think about the spirituality of the uh, or the ethos of a political party over a nation, and that's that's what I think this is doing, if that makes sense. Well, you know, in in Daniel eight, I read Prince of Princes. Yeah. What? How would you interpret that? The principality. I mean, again, this Prince is like of princes. Yeah. So, so I think again that might be saying, John, that Michael represents like the overarching spiritual representation of the people even though there might be sub-spiritual realities. So that would be the spirit of America versus Democrat-Republican on the next level. Those would be the princes. The prince of princes would be the amalgam of that. Would be God? No, no. The prince of princes is like the American ethos. Uh, And then the other princes are the sub-ethos. Okay. So that's more of a spirit. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, Because notice when you read about Gabriel, in Daniel, Gabriel's a man. The the scriptures are clear. Gabriel's a man in Daniel, even though he's clearly not a man. (laughs) Right? I mean, he's clearly superhuman. And this is the first mention of of Gabriel. And then, of course, by the time we get to the New Testament, Gabriel's an, an archangel. Yeah, he appears in Tobit, too. Yeah, and Tobit is where we learn about Raphael. So, so here's Michael and Gabriel, and then in Tobit we get um, Raphael, and in, and in Esdras we get, um, we get Uriel, and we get uh, Jeremiel. <laughs> so there's these other things that show up. Um, in 423, actually it said a couple of times, but I wrote down 423. It says, until seven times pass over him. What the heck is that? It's, I mean, again, that's, does it literally happen seven times or is that a figurative well, number? It's happening seven times. What's passing over? The opportunity to repent. So does it mean years or does it mean like somebody confronts him like, hey, Living like a freak for the moon god is like a bad plan. <laughs> yeah. The point is he's not quick 
to turn over, even though this is deleterious to him personally and the nation. That's what I would suspect. It says, until you learn the Most High has sovereignty over you, the kingdom of mortals. It says, gives it to whom he will. God gives it to whom he will. Um, I don't know what it is, but because I don't remember, but Anyway. Authority over mortals. So it's not always the most pious person. That's the interesting thing. And, and what we end up reading in Esdras is, hey, God purposefully destroyed the temple to punish Jewish people. That happens in Maccabees too. So like this is the holiest place on earth to the only real God. How would God let that be destroyed? Uh, to teach you a lesson. <laughs> not because God's weak, but, but God engineered that. I mean, that's sort of one of those readings. Do the Jews think that um, everything that has happened to them is the result of God trying to t teach them yeah. even today? Some do. So, you know, and you've got to think about this particularly when, when, when you think that God is all-powerful and has made a covenant with you and then you're taken into bondage and um, God's dwelling place on earth is destroyed, you've got a few choices. One of them is that God is weak. Like, other gods are stronger. So it's very unlikely you'll keep your, your faith. Another one you could do is you could say, well, God was strong, but God is dead. <laughs> Which we sort of heard in this country 70 years ago. That sort of came this movement, right? Um, you could say that God is not so good. <laughs> you could also say that, um, well, God is in fact living and strong and good, so we must be bad. And, and, uh, and then uh, God has engineered these to punish their natural consequences, or God's trying to correct us. Um, and that's actually how the scriptures tend to interpret the destruction of the temple, is that God purposely, that wasn't an accident, Actually, God wanted that to happen to teach us that we have to reform. The us being the Jewish people. Yeah. Now, so after the Holocaust, this is what happened as well. So the Holocaust is like this times 10. You know, why did the Holocaust happen? Well, God is weak, or God's not even real, or God's dead, or God's not good. In fact, one of the interpretations that came out of Emory by this... Um, Jewish theologian is God's like an abusing parent. But you know, in Germany, during the time of Martin Luther, he is the one who had said the Jews should be anathema and go to hell and all this other stuff. And so this history has lived among the German people for ages, and the Jews knew that. Yeah, it'd be, and then I think Jewish people became very used to local pogroms that came and went. But this obviously Holocaust something different from that. Really, really different. What's, what's the Holocaust? Do you think, if you look back through history, that the, the pogrom, which is the Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s, was any 
was, was, was greater in terms of the number of Jews killed than other pogroms? Yes, absolutely. This is like the penultimate pogrom, where people are being not just locally rounded up, but collectively, and even armies are taking new countries and rounding up new people. Um, there are some Orthodox people who blame the Holocaust on conservative Judaism. <laughs> you may laugh at that, but Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell said 9-11 happened because of liberal American things like the ACLU and the NAACP and gay rights. Pat Robertson just said we shouldn't be condemning Saudi Arabia because we've got $100 million of investment there and it might cost U.S. American jobs. So it's one man should not cause that to be um, removed, i.e. The, the $100 million yeah. or the jobs in the United States, which I think is unbelievable, the theologian like that. Well, it's not, else. because the thing is, right, as G.K. Chesterton said, we rarely disagree about what's evil. We disagree about what evil is acceptable. And, and that's sort of how we do it. I mean, at a certain point, right, governments probably do have to think about forests and trees. But uh, I would tell you the role of the deacon in the Episcopal Church is to think about the trees. <laughs> the deacon. And priests are all deacons. Now, Pat Robertson is another guy. You know what? And I'm probably crazy about my own things. But obviously that's, well, that's just, that's just privileged thinking. The traditions and the custom, and I think part of what's interesting is, especially post-Holocaust, it's sort of like, well, look, if God allows that to happen or does that or is involved, like we won't worship that God, but at the same time, we're not going to let the Nazis take our heritage from us. Well, again, Orthodox Jews do. Some Orthodox Jews would say, because of reform, liberal Reformed Jews, God punished all Jews. All Jews. Yeah. I would really. There's a uh, rabbi. He's retired now, but a rabbi in Allison, uh, Rabbi Kessler. Yeah. Who's kind of the, the rabbi for everybody, Jews and non-Jews. I would. I would like to hear what he says about that. Yeah, you know, Morella Beyer goes and sees him frequently. Uh, interesting guy and, and bitterly not liked by some of the rabbis locally here. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's this interesting... Th well, never mind, I don't want to comment on that. I, I, by the way, it's not like all Orthodox people believe what I just said. It's like a crackpot theory, just like there's a crackpot theory about 9-11 being caused by the ACLU. I mean, I just... Uh, so this, this is how some people make sense of it. I mean, I think the truth is, it's very hard to make sense of. I mean, even as a Christian person, the Holocaust is very difficult to make sense of. Ultimately, I have to sort of say, well, like, God in general lets us do really awful and stupid and terrible things. But that God doesn't engineer that, God allows it to happen. And then the question is, why? And I can't answer that. As Christians, we believe that Jesus will come again. Correct? Yeah, I mean, that's, we say that every week in the Nicene right. Creed. So I, so, so I guess my, what, I'm quite, what I'm not questioning, what I'm wondering about is, what's the end game for Jews? 
Well, glad you asked. So most Jewish people don't believe in hell or heaven anyway. Uh, most Jewish people, if they believe in hell, it's only for people like Hitler and Haman. Um, but it's not for everybody. Most people think that you, if you get an afterlife, if you don't get an afterlife, you just cease to exist. Um, and heaven is very, you know, differently nuanced if you're Jewish. It's not like this city in the sky where everybody wears white and plays harps, as it has become sort of in the Christian imagination. And actually, this is a really interesting thing because when we read books like Daniel and um, excuse me, the Maccabees, we start to hear this idea about resurrection, but it is not like what we think. Resurrection is for people who die young and they just get their life back. Their body they get back. So when you read the New Testament, Paul talks about the resurrection of the body. In fact, when you say the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of the body. You don't believe that. I guarantee you, you do not believe in your bodily resurrection because I don't want that. <laughs> I don't think you do either. I want my body back when I was 18. I'd rather, ha- I'd rather, have, I'd rather have Lou Ferrigno's body when he was 20, you know, I mean, you know like, <laughs> than my own. You, you, I, you know what I'm saying here, right? I mean, but that gives you a hint that this was physical, and the reason they cared about it is because people like Mattathias... Um, people like Judas the Maccabee, he, he um, I mean, he was killed real young for nothing wrong, actually for fidelity to God. So, like, how does God be just like that? Oh, like, you get your body back. Remember, these people thought when you all died, you went to Sheol, good or bad, you went to the grave. So, resurrection is like a newish idea that some people get to come back up out of the grave. Ultimately, they go back down. But this idea that you have a soul somewhere inside your body, it's not biblical ever. No book of the Bible believes that. They, Jesus doesn't talk about that. Paul doesn't talk about that. You can read 1 Thessalonians. When uh, the, the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised first. They'll come about the grave. God will somehow reconstitute their bodies, and their bodies like float up in the sky, but their bodies float up in the sky, not their ethereal essence. So Sheol is just the grave. It's just where dead people go. All of them. It's kind of dark. <laughs> it's underground, in case you're interested, right? Which is why, like, trees are such a big deal, a giant tree, because the roots are in Sheol and the branches are in heaven. And heaven really just is the sky. It's up. We, we sent people, you know, that was the words of the first cosmonaut, right? Like, I got out of the world and God's not here. So uh, we've had to, we've, you know, we can say, like, oh, the Bible's talking about that figuratively. No, no, we've made that figurative because we know it physically isn't the case. But the, I'm pretty sure people believed in a three-tiered universe that was very physical, right? I mean, People were afraid Columbus was going to sail off the, off the dang map, you know? So, um, and, and where was he going to go? Tartarus or Sheol? I mean, like, you know, not just a physical place, but like an, an infinite scary place where there's like dragons and monsters and stuff. So, so um, all of that's going on here. And again, resurrection is like a really evolving doctrine. 
And I think we hurt ourselves if we don't think about that. Uh, by the way, I don't think you get your body back. I don't really know what you get, but I, but I, but I can't imagine it's you just get your body back and you live again. I mean, the resurrected Jesus has a body, but it, it's weird because it goes through walls and it can eat, but it doesn't have to, but it's, and it's wounded. It's like, that's weird. That's really nothing like your body is. You, you know, your, your body heals itself or, or it dies. <laughs> And it doesn't walk through walls. I, I've often had, forgive me, I've often had this thought that maybe is more Eastern than, when I say Eastern, I'm talking about like in New England, that what you, when you die, you come back exactly as exactly the same person that you are, except that in that life you make one small improvement. And you go through this until you until you've reached the the ultimate, and then you can be accepted into whatever. I mean that that definitely you think about it that takes the eternality of the soul very seriously. In that you have something truly eternal about you that is sort of yearning to be reconnected. I mean that I, so. I, it certainly isn't a Christian doctrine, um, but. It, you know, in a certain way, heaven is about eternal elements in mortal bodies being reconnected. So there's some commonality. I don't want to say, by the way, that the heaven we talk about isn't real. I just want to say it's not quite what the Bible had in mind, if that makes sense. I mean, because we understand that we've got a lot of time on our hands and tradition and thinking they didn't have, because, you know, like... Well, they didn't. So, so uh, the other thing I think is that God is still speaking to us, and we still have to figure. So we we get more communication than they did in some ways because we've got more time for it. tradition. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, one last thought uh, from Maccabees, from Second Maccabees. This is sort of the opening thing. Um, Jason thought he had Jason, who's this Jewish guy who sides with the Gentiles, thought he'd got victory. He got it over his own people, which is the worst kind of failure. <laughs> Victory over your own people is the worst kind of failure. That's an interesting, interesting thought from two Maccabees. Okay, uh, it really speaks to our national parties, right? Because if a Democrat wins over their own people, those being Americans, not just over Republicans. That's the worst kind of failure. Interesting thought. Anyway, okay, next week we will read 